This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Complutense University of Madrid Film Program, where we'll teach you how to give the audience what they want. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's the end of the school year, so we have two graduation slash end of school year related movies. Kind of. Kind of. More just school related. Yeah, and, <laughs> and they are both foreign films with 1996's Thesis and 2015's Kill Me Please. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. Okay. In what country is 2000's Ginger Snaps set? Oh, well, now it's like... <laughs> now you don't know, do you? I mean, my immediate response would be America, but since they're asking, it makes me think maybe it's Canada. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. I'm going to say America. Try Canada. It's Canada? It's Canada. Damn it. You guessed wrong. Damn it. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a Ginger Snaps question on my card, but it is too easy. Oh, okay. So I'm not, I'm going to, oh, here, I'll read it to you, but it's not going to count as your question. Okay. In Ginger Snaps 2000, Ginger becomes what supernatural creature? A werewolf. Right, like if you've seen the movie at all or even have a passing familiarity with it. <laughs> You know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. What kind of monster does the main character become in an American werewolf in Paris? <laughs> uh, notice I mentioned the sequel. I did uh, notice how you did that. All right. Kelsey. Yeah. In The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, mm-hmm. 1970, what is the location where Sam first witnesses the killer in action? In a museum. Or an art store. It's got an, art in it. An art store? <laughs> a gallery, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's an art gallery. <laughs> All right, good. All right, Kelsey, moving on to our first movie, Tessis. Story by Matteo Gill and Alejandro Amenabar. Screenplay and direction by Alejandro Amenabar. Starring Anna Torrent, Fele Martinez, and Eduardo Noriega. What is Tessis? About. I actually did a pretty good job of summing it up last week. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's a girl who's in college working on her thesis, and she discovers a snuff film because her, her thesis is all about audiovisual violence. She pretty much goes after the killer. Yeah. It is a film out of Spain, so the whole movie is in Spanish. Should people watch it? If you can find it. I recommend it. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I thought it was really good. Yeah. A lot going on. A lot of twists and twists on twists. Yes. And they're like, 
there are so many different threads that this story goes into. It does. Ex- it's not like uber complex, but that coupled with the, the fact that language, we're reading everything, yeah, it can get a little bit. <laughs> it made it much. a little difficult to follow some of the storylines. At least, at the very least, they all looked different enough that, like, there was never a point where I was like, "Who's who? Who's Lou? <laughs> yes, who's Lou?" But it does make it really difficult when you're reading and writing at the same time. Yes, I would say foreign language films or silent films are the hardest for us <laughs> because we are writing notes. And especially when it's an obscure film, this one not so much, but Kill Me Please, yes, where there are like basically aren't any good plot synopses online so we can make sure that we're following along with the plot like appropriately. We tell these stories on our own, but if we ever get lost, we reference these plot synopses. And there just isn't one for Kill Me Please. So... <laughs> For both of these, I was just writing out, like, the major plot beats. And this one, there's just tons of them. Yes. So at the same time, I need to read and write and write down what my commentary is, like, the things I'm thinking and still comprehend the story. So it was a little much for us. But in spite of all that, this one's really good. Yes. Especially for, like, a 90s thriller horror. You want to tell them who this director is? Yes. Alejandro Amenabar. Immediately after he wrote this, his next two movies are Abre los Ojos, which is the basis of Vanilla Sky. It's the original version of Vanilla Sky. One of my favorite movies. Yeah. And The Others. Not so much one of my favorite movies. This is another movie that Kelsey saw without me. It came out way before we right. met. But you're never going to watch it again. It's so, on the list. So when am I going to- Somebody gonna... recommended it. Okay. <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> yes, I'll finally get to see it. You've never seen it? <laughs> no, that's my point. Although I do know how it ends. Oh. <laughs> which I wonder, is that going to color my perception of the movie? Probably. Or is it going to improve it? You know that theory that knowing a twist going into a movie makes you appreciate it more? Yeah, maybe. We'll, uh, we'll see how that works out for me. Anyway, you could take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1996's Thesis. Hey guys, there's just absolutely nothing online for this movie that's in English. We've already told you what the movie's about, so you can decide whether or not you want to see it that way. And now we're going to talk about Thesis. Kelsey, can you get us started? How does Thesis begin? By the way, I'm going to tell you what their foreign language film titles are, but throughout the conversation, we'll be referring to them by their English titles just for simplicity and consistency's sake. We're dumb Americans, and that's all we can give you. Hey, I'm learning Japanese. It's true, you are. I really think so. (laughs) You like that? Yep. All right, go ahead. It starts with, uh, we meet our main lady. What is her name? 
Angela. Angela. We can call her Angela. Okay. Because, again, we're dumb Americans. (laughs) So, yeah, Angela is on a train, and the train has to stop because someone has thrown themselves on the tracks. And they get cut in half, basically. And this happens way more often than you'd think. Yeah, it happened to us. I don't know if we ever told this story on the show, but we were on a train from San Francisco back to Southern California, and... He didn't commit suicide. Supposedly. Supposedly, the assumption is is that he was out jogging. He looked like he was in workout clothes. He had earbuds in, and he was running along the train track, and I guess expected the train to come from the other direction. But nope, he ended up getting hit. Now, how we didn't see him, I don't know, because it was on a long, straight stretch. But either way, we were there for, like... An extra three hours or something like that. It was intense. It was painful. And they wouldn't let us leave. Yeah, they wouldn't let us get off. In this case, they make her get off. And I have a friend who used to take the the Amtrak to work all the time, Alex. And she said she, within like some ridiculously small amount of period, like six months, it happened to her three times. Wow. It happens a lot. Yeah. So this happens, and I guess they're close enough to a stopping point that they let everyone off. Yes, and they try to rush people through because they basically don't want people stopping and gawking. And and there's comments like, don't be morbid, just move along, don't look, you don't need to see this, etc. Etc. And her curiosity kind of gets the better of her. And, and there this, is a whole group of people that are not listening to these, right, yes. these <laughs> rules. But somebody does grab her and guide her on as so she ends up leaving, even though she does try to see the body. She never does. But that is kind of the impetus to the entire, and I'm going to say this, I'm not being facetious about it. It is kind of the basis of the entire like thesis of the film. It's the human desire to observe violence whether it disgusts you or not and it does disgust angela but she still feels that pull feels that curiosity curiosity. and that's what her thesis is all about and how violence in media may affect this whether it contributes to it whether it satiates you how it affects families etc etc so she goes to speak with her professor Figueroa. About her thesis. And he, she's talking about how it's all about violence and in audiovisual files. And she asks him to go to the archives and to get her some stuff that she wouldn't be able to take out yes. as a regular student. Now, he does agree to this, but it's obvious that he's embarrassed to do so. But he does really like her, not like in a weird, creepy sort of way. And he likes her idea for her thesis. And so he's willing to do this for her, even though it kind of weirds him out. Yes. And at the same time, apparently someone has told her, hey, you should go talk to this dude, Chima. Chema. Chema. Mm-hmm. He has all kinds of crazy videos that you might be interested in seeing. Yeah. We don't find out how she heard about this or what. No, but she knows of him kind of already. They're they're both within the, the cinema um, yes. department. Yeah. Cinematic department. And he's very condescending at first. Mm-hmm. 
and very rude and brushes her off. But then he's interested in her because he's like, why is this pretty girl interested in this stuff? Yeah. And he observes her at the food court. And it's a fun juxtaposition. She is reading about violence. She has classical music playing in her headphones. Uh And he has like crazy metal rock playing in his headphones. Right. So there's this moment where they kind of meet eyes and then he gets up and walks to her and so every time we see her we see her from his point of view and so we hear the heavy metal and whenever we see him we see him from her perspective and we hear the classical music so it's this really interesting juxtaposition Mm -hmm. and he basically invites her over to his house he's like look you want to see it come on over Yeah, at first he denies he has any of that material, and then when they have this moment, he invites her over. And his apartment is decorated with all sorts of, like, dead body props and movie posters, particularly horror movie posters. There's Alien, there's... There were tons, I don't remember. Tons, tons. Another juxtaposition of character now you said juxtaposition first somebody mentioned that juxtaposition is like one of my favorite words (laughs) i'm only using it where it is necessary here and kelsey mentioned it first not that i have a problem with it Uh, anyway (laughs) uh we should look up some synonyms for juxtaposition yes by contrast her poster that you really get a good look at in her bedroom is for my own private Idaho. (laughs) Which I've still never seen really want to. Go ahead. So it's very clear that he he wants to push people away by his persona, by the way he dresses, his home, everything. Oh, he's he an edge lord, totally. He's a what? He's an edge lord. What's an edge lord? Okay, a person who wants to be edgy. I mean, kind of. Who wants to show off by how like edgy and disturbing they are, and and all the weird shit that they know and that they're into. Urban Dictionary defines edge lord as a person who expresses opinions which are either strongly nihilistic. Or contain references to taboo topics which are deliberately intended to shock or offend people. Yes. Yeah. That is exactly what he wants. He wants to shock you. He wants to offend you. And that will not do him any favors in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he basically, when he takes her into the room and he has like all these videos, he essentially says that cinema is violence and that that's what cinema should be yeah he has a much different outlook on violence than she does Mm -hmm. like i said earlier she is disgusted by it and she wants to know why people are so drawn to it Uh as opposed to him who's just like no that's just what that's what it is and that's what it should be Uh uh-huh and so he shows her a movie called fresh blood which is just a compilation of violence and murder scenes. And we never actually find out definitively if any of it's real, but it looks very fake to me. Like, it is depicted as if it's real, like, camcorder video, but you can see this when people have their hoods over their heads and they get shot from behind the head, the squibs go off in different directions than the gun is actually pointed in, you know, stuff like that. So... 
it implies that there's something inside that mask that goes off and you don't really see too much too graphic. You just see gunshots, blood, and then that's it. Well, the first thing that they watch is a dude getting his brain taken out. (laughs) Yeah, that's in Fresh Blood. Yeah. That is a real movie? It is not. Okay. So while she's there and watching these videos with him, we get a cut to her professor. Figueroa. Who is going to the archives like he said he was going to. There's a film in particular that he wants to get, some Czechoslovakian film. That's what he that's what he tells the guy. Okay. Let's just put this out there. So he's going to go in there to get a movie that is certainly not on file. <laughs> and he seems to know. No, no, no. I think it is on file. Remember, there's a section that's pornography and other. That's what he says he's going in for. What he's actually going for, I think he knows about it. You do? Yes. Then how why else would he die? How else would he know how to get into that little area? Because it's a secret. They're not telling people that it's there. No, he heard the sound from over there. You told me yourself that that, that's where the professor left from. That's where Professor Castro left from. So he heard a sound from over there. But remember how nervous he was when he first walked in and he didn't really look like he, like, was actually looking for- Yeah, because he said in his office he's embarrassed by this. It would look bad if he's browsing the archives for ultra-violent and sexual movie, deviant films. Here is how- He's embarrassed. Here is how I read it. Uh Uh-huh. I read it apparently very differently from you. Yeah. I got the impression that he was aware that there was an area for really violent films- I don't think he knew exactly what he was getting himself into, but I do think that he went in there with the intention of going into this private area and taking one of those movies. And then he was going to watch it, I think, to see what it was, and then that didn't go well for him. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I, I think it's totally valid because by my interpretation, there's a lot of open questions still, but... Your interpretation answers those questions, but just introduces a bunch more, too. So it's like neither of them are really great. Yeah. It's kind of a hole in the movie. It is. They never tell us if he knew about it or not. I'm guessing that he did. And so the archivist tells him, oh, it's funny. Nobody's been in here past month, but today two different professors are here. And and so... Figueroa is like, whoa, 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 there's another person in here? And the guy's like, yeah, it's fine. We're almost closing anyway, so you guys are going to have to get what you need and get out. And so Figueroa goes in, and he does his best to be discreet and not be seen until ultimately he sees or he hears. Yes, he does not see. He hears. We're supposed to be wondering who the killer is, even though it's painfully obvious. Yes. (laughs) Well, kind of. So he hears the other professor leaving, and he goes over to where he heard the other professor, and there's this small little door. Leads to, like, an electrical area. Yeah, like a dingy sort of hallway where you got these pipes that run electrical lines through them, and he follows them down, and he finds this extra room with a wall full of tapes. We find out later there's probably some 200 of them there, and... He hears the archivist call out, hey, we're closing. You got to get out of here. And he grabs one of the videos and he leaves. He takes him back to 
one of his rooms, like where his actual desk is and all of his video equipment, sets it all up and sits down in one of the seats and watches the video. It has color bars for some reason, I noticed, as if the person who set this up wants to make sure that your television colors are the most vivid and accurate, because this is going to be, it's intended to be consumed as a film, not just as a record of something. It is like an actual film, I guess. The person who made it wants to make sure you see the right reds. So Angela comes looking for him to see if she can get her hands on that video. And when she shows up, she finds him sitting there, his inhaler fallen on the floor, and he's dead. And because she's kind of weirdly curious about the morbid, she reaches out and she touches him on his face and various spots of his exposed skin. And then she sees he was watching something, goes and grabs the tape from the player, and leaves. It doesn't tell anybody she even found him. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things like in Hereditary where it's like, you know, you're involved in this crazy incident that you just don't know what to do. So you don't do anything. Also, she wants the tape. <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah, but I don't think the tape is the reason why she didn't tell anybody. She knew he was going to be found. Why didn't she tell anybody? Chema asks if she found the professor. At, at school and she says no she outright says no but she does ask him if he thinks that a movie can kill somebody so when it gets announced by one of the deans or the head of the department that figueroa was found dead and that he was watching a movie at the time Chema is like, oh, you lied to me. You did find him. And so he kind of calls her on it. At the same time, this head of the department or whomever introduces us to the new professor, Professor Castro, who we find out later is kind of a celebrity in the film world, particularly in the Spanish film world, where... I guess he has Oscars or something. We see them in his office. I don't know if they're real Oscars or what. There's a picture of him posing like he's James Bond. Yep. Uh, (laughs) So we find all that stuff out later. Anyway, she goes home and she puts the video in. But she puts the contrast all the way down to zero. Right. She, she, well, what, what happens is the bars come on. She freaks out and turns it off. And then she sort of psychs herself up and then turns the contrast all the way down so where it's just black. And all she can do is just hear it. And she hears screams. Just terrified screams of a woman. And because she can't bear to watch it, she ends up recording the audio, putting it on a cassette tape, and, and listening to it. And falls asleep to it. Yeah, but she forgets she left the video in the tape recorder. And so when her sister shows up, and she wakes up to her sister being like, hey, what's this tape? Yeah, you want to watch a movie or whatever? And she, she runs out and grabs it. And the sister's like, oh, can I watch it? No, it's for school. She's like, I don't care. I'm curious. And, you know, one of those contrived sort of scenarios. But she she gets it out. So now Chema really wants to see that tape, too. Yes. They go to his apartment to watch it. Yeah, because she's she admits, I haven't actually watched it yet. Uh-huh. So they take it back to his place. And he puts it in. He has no problems. He's just going to watch. And at first, she, like, covers her eyes. 
And he says, oh, my God, this is terrible. Don't look. Yeah. But just as we saw at the train, as soon as she's told don't look, she can't help herself and she looks. Mm -hmm. So we hear more of the screams and we find out that it's a young lady tied to a chair being cut and beat by a man in a balaclava until eventually she is shot. And then he chops her up with a chainsaw and we see glimpses of the gore. We don't see... We don't see much, except we see, like, close-ups of the screen, so it's very kind of, like, pixelated and all that. But what Chema notices is that part of the dismemberment is zoomed in. And based on how the lines are laid out and there are and there are artifacts, he identifies that it's a digital zoom, not, like, a lens zoom, where the focus changes. It's, it's blowing up a picture digitally, and so you see certain artifacts. She says... You know, so what? You know, well, maybe we can figure out what camera it was. And she's like, a digital zoom, there's got to be a bunch. And he's like, well, what about two years ago? And the reason we know it's two years ago is because he recognizes that girl. Yes. It's also how he knows that it's real because that girl disappeared two years ago. Mm-hmm. And she went to school with them. So they go through all these camera brochures that he has, and they find one. It's an X-T500 from Sony. It's the only one that they could find that actually had a digital zoom in Spain two years ago. She goes to take the film and leave, but he asks her to leave it so he can watch it again. And she does. When she gets home, she thinks somebody has been searching her room. And she blames her sister for it, but the sister denies it. Later that night, when Chema calls her for another reason, she takes the opportunity to warn him, hey, somebody's been searching through my room. You'd better be careful. Has anything been moved? And he looks around. And his room is just a disaster. <laughs> he's like, no. He barely looks. He's just like, no one's here. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, her room is like in perfect shape, which is why she noticed that one drawer was slightly out. Yes. So it tells us a little bit more about the two of them. But the reason he called is to invite her over because he found something. So she goes over and what he points out is that there are edits in the film. So the film is edited together and the audio and video are cut out in small portions at certain parts. And it appears to be when that person would say the killer's name. And so they're like, oh, my God, she knew the killer. Mm Mm-hmm. So that gives them a little bit more information about who the potential suspects may be. It also tells us that this video was, in fact, meant to be watched because if it was only meant to be kept as a record for themselves, why would they have edited the content out? So anyway. Basically, Chema is determined to find the person. Yeah, she tries to stop him. And yeah, he's like, she's no. afraid. She's yeah. afraid for her life. She's like, if we go looking, we don't know what this person's going to do. Right. But he's determined to find him. So at this point, I wrote down, it's kind of obvious. The movie, whether it's the way it works out or not, the movie is, is pointing the finger at... Professor Castro. He gives this whole impassioned speech about saving cinema for Spain. Otherwise, America is going to take it over. Because Americans give the public what they want. Right. And he's, again, all about giving the public what they want, which is another thing we've kind of heard Chema talk about, about how that's what violence is. People want to see violence. So there's violence in film. 
And so he kind of says this as, as well, and he makes that point about all cinema should be is giving audiences what they want so they will see it, and it will save Spanish cinema. And, you know, it's like, well, the movie's pointing their finger at Castro because he's a brand new professor. He takes over for Figueroa. We know there was another professor in the archives who was likely in that area where these films were. So I'm thinking, okay, obviously it's Castro, or at least the movie wants to set it up to look like it's Castro. So she's been copying newspaper clippings of this girl who disappeared, whose name is Vanessa. And she's been pouring over them while she listens to the tape of... Vanessa screaming. And she's doing this in the food court. Yes. Probably not the best place, but while she's doing it, she looks over and she sees a dude that just happens to be using... A Sony X-T500. Is it ridiculous that she just happens to look up and see this person? Yes. It is. (laughs) (laughs) He's a young man, and he's filming what appears to be his girlfriend, and he leaves his girlfriend there, puts the camera- And the camera! Puts the camera in the bag, and then walks away. We find out to go to the restroom, but he's leaving the camera with the girlfriend. So I guess, at first, we were very confused as to why he would just leave the camera behind and then just leave, (laughs) but he was going to the restroom. So she follows him, and he ends up- catching her. Yeah, he knows that she's following him. He stops forcing her to continue on, and Uh then he follows her. And then she does something really fucking dumb. She starts running. If you're being followed and you're in public, stay in public. Yes. She ends up trying to lose him through doors, and she ends up going into one of these hallway areas. Where no one is. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Just so the dumbest thing you could do. <laughs> she trips, she drops her bag, and a bunch of papers fall out, including her Walkman, but the Walkman doesn't really come back up again. Yeah, which I thought it would, considering it has the I, sounds of the I screams. I think the implication is, is that she prioritizes that and does grab that, but leaves some of the papers behind because he comes through the door again. And eventually he catches up to her and he hands her back the photocopies that she took. And he says... There's more to this than the public knows. I knew Vanessa. She was a friend of my girlfriend. And he introduces her to Yolanda, his girlfriend, who pops back up again. And she kind of freaks out and gets nervous when he tells her that Angela is doing a project on Vanessa. Because that was her explanation. You know, she's doing a project on the disappearance of this girl or whatever. Later on, when he's not with Yolanda... He catches Angela in the bathroom, which is really fucking creepy. She's like washing her face. And then when she turns around, he's there. Um, But he offers himself up. This is his name is Bosco. He offers himself up and his camera for her project. Yeah. The thing is, he is so creepy and yet so good at being reasonable reasonable right like you would be unreasonable if you were freaked out by him basically exactly he he behaves in such a way where 
And these people exist. Basically, he's gaslighting you. Yes. I've known a lot of people that are like this. Yeah. Good at it. They know exactly how to make you feel guilty for for the way you feel. Yes. Yeah. And make you second guess your own emotions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Angela tells Chema and he's like, well, you got to rehearse. We need to know what questions you're going to ask him so we can get the information we want, but also not tip him off that that's, you know, what we're doing. And so they interview him in a classroom and we find out that Vanessa left a note saying that she fell in love with someone. He tells them that he if he could give her a message that he wants her to come back and that he loves her. Uh, There's. Not really an implication that they had a romantic relationship, just like the friendly love. But Chema doesn't trust him. But Angela believes him. See, and this was hard because it's so clear that Chema has a crush on Angela from the get-go that it's difficult to figure out, is it really that he doesn't trust Bosco? Yes. Or is it that he's jealous of Bosco? Right, and I think Angela kind of feels this a little bit. I think Angela thinks it's purely jealousy. Yeah. And Chema says, uh, no, I think he wants to rape and kill you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She says, well, then fine, let's turn him in. And he says, well, we don't have any proof. We don't even know where Figueroa got the tape. And she says, well, he got it from the archives. He told me he was going to go to the archives, so that must be where he found it. Uh, And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. There's no way this would be in the archives. So she goes home and... The camera is sitting there in her living room and no one else is around. And from behind the door, which was open, he closes the door and Bosco's there. She freaks out and she runs into the restroom and her mom peeks out from behind the wall in the kitchen and is like, Anhala? Like, what's going on? And when she comes out and talks to her mom, she's like, your buddy Bosco's here and he's really handsome. And so she leaves them alone. Is there any excuse for someone to hide behind a clo- like a- an open door? And I can think of one. She's the one who opened the door. Why was he standing in that awkward? He might have been looking at whatever photos were on the 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 table that's right there or whatever. And then she opened the door, and then he pushes it around, and that's when she turns and sees him. So I could see how that could be reasonable. But again, if a dude I just met who. Really creeps me out because he's got the same camera as a, a killer. Yes, but he doesn't, that. ostensibly he doesn't know that. He has no idea that the camera has anything to do with anything. He brought the camera over so they could film her portions of the interview. He's like, well, I mean, if we're going to cut together my interview, you can't just cut from me to me. You know, it needs to cut back to you. And so we need to record you doing this stuff. Now, I think this interaction with the two of them is a great example of how a dude who might think that he's flirting is actually being super fucking creepy. And she, the girl may think that she's in danger. The problem, and I totally agree with you. uh, What, what happens in this exchange is very real, but at the same time, really hard to wrap my mind around because she's into it. 
She well, she, a, she's really attracted to him. She's really attracted yeah. to him, but she's also afraid of him. And that's just very and I think, strange. And I think that fear also kind of, you know, intrigues her Excites and turns her, her on. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. I think that her sexual life is an interesting one, probably. But that's not the point. Uh-huh. My point is, is that it's really irksome to watch this because it's not just that, like, oh, I hate this guy. He's being a bastard. Yeah. It's also, she kind of wants it. She also right. kind of doesn't. Right. And she's wondering, like, if I'm wrong, this is a cute guy who's flirting with me, you know? But if I'm right, I die. Like, <laughs> you know, so it's it's like an it's like an elevated version of what might be going through a person's head Still in though, a similar situation. Even if he was a really attractive guy. Okay, here's what happens, everybody. He has her sit on the bed, which just automatically, I, I was like, okay, first of all, there's no reason to do this in the bedroom. Second of all, there's no fucking reason for you to sit on the bed. But whatever, she does it. He ends up coming over to her, and he says, every time you speak, every word that you say, I will move that many more inches closer right, to you. Right, and the... <sighs> The point, ostensibly, that's maybe my favorite word, ostensibly, is that he notices that she's uncomfortable. And not in like a, oh, you don't want to be around me way, but maybe you're flustered or whatever. So he's like, okay, we need to get you comfortable with me. So every time you speak because you're uncomfortable, I'm going to get closer and so, you know, it'll allow you to either let me be closer to you or allow you to just sit in the moment and be comfortable. That's That could be what this is all about. That's for all appearances what it's about. But there's this subtext of the murderer and all this other stuff that theoretically he knows nothing about. So it's really weird. And he, he basically uses it an excuse to get super close to her and eventually almost kiss her and then he backs away and she says i didn't like that at all and he says well it won't happen again he's like that's okay i'm not i'm never gonna do it again like you know why would you even bother telling me that it made you uncomfortable it's not like i would do it again you know there's that fucking gaslighting going on yes yes it's a typical guy move it's a you know, once their pride has been hurt, they have to act like, Psh, I wasn't interested in you anyway. Right. Like a and, fucking child. And he says, when she asks about Yolanda, he says that they broke up, but more or less. Mm-hmm. So later on, Angela tells Chema that Bosco told her he bought the camera secondhand a couple months ago. And Chema's like, absolutely not. A snob like him, he would have bought it new and with a warranty. So, we're on to our next clue to follow. Well, first, Angela's mother invites him to stay. Oh, yeah. And the sister reveals what the thesis is really about. And and, he starts hitting on the sister. uh Uh-huh. Yes. Um, Who is going to law school. So, Angela ends up sneaking into Sony's warranty office in Spain. This is back in the 90s where... They had some stuff written down physically, filed away on cards and other things in the computer systems. And the warranty lady does not believe her when she's like, I need to look up my warranty. 
Well, when was it? Two years ago. Well, then the warranty would be expired. It's like, well, I keep copious records and I need my warranty records. And she's like, oh, that's good. What's your name? Oh, it's not under my name. It's under my brother's name. And and the lady's like, mm-hmm. well, then he needs to come in himself. She's like, well, I was told that I could come pick it up. Who told you that? I don't know. Some girl? One second. And she gets up and she leaves. Like, she's going to deal with this right now. Who told her this? And so Angela takes this opportunity to sit down at her desk and access the computer files and look she up steals who the had a warranty. And I, I understand that the lady working there would have absolutely no idea who she is. Uh-huh. That just seems like such a huge risk. It's a huge risk. <laughs> so she does not find Bosco's name, but she does find out that their film school is on that list uh, uh, under the name Faculty. So somebody from the film school purchased 13 cameras and bought warranties for them all uh, two years ago. Because that's, you know, obviously when they were looking. Meanwhile, Chema breaks into the archives where he sees a camera. And so he's like, hmm, all right. He goes to the security guard, which... Apparently he knows their buddies, maybe old pals, they don't talk anymore or whatever. And he basically bribes the security guard with high class porn, as he puts it, <laughs> for copies of the security tapes. Angela sleeping at night starts to have nightmares where she thinks somebody's watching her with the camera. Another dream that Chris didn't know was a dream. <laughs> I pointed that out uh, myself because I... I question everything. It's not like I don't notice the weird stuff. It's like, hey, that's weird. And that's inconsistent with this other thing. And Kelsey's like, well, yeah, because she's dreaming. It's like, well, I mean, I mean, I could gather that. But I'm right now I'm just collecting evidence. I'm not coming to any conclusions. Because what if any of this is real? But it wasn't. It wasn't. She sits up in bed. She doesn't find anybody. Because uh, she sees, like, a man holding a camera in the darkness of a room. She gets up, doesn't find anybody. She sits up in bed. Bosco comes in, revealing that he has her keys. Uh, he pulls a knife on her, claiming that he's there to kill her. And she seduces, in quotes, him instead. Now, it's heavily implied that partially because she actually is attracted to him, but also partially because she thinks this is going to keep her alive. He goes down on her, but then she realizes he's taping it. And when she looks shocked, he pops up and stabs her. And then her mom wakes her up. It's the morning and she has a call. It's Professor Castro. He wants to meet her in his office about her work because he's taken over for Figueroa, guiding her through her thesis process. But before she leaves, she gets a call and it's a woman looking for her. But she claims... Is Angela there? No. Hangs up. <laughs> she claims she isn't there and just hangs up. It's the best! <laughs> it's so good. So she goes to school and she sees Bosco again, making out with Yolanda again. Which upsets her. And and he w kind of watches her while he's making out. She is out. down to fuck that guy. Yes. So Castro, once again, he says that the filmmaker's only responsibility is to give the public what they want. He tells Angela that her work so far is superficial. And she's like, well, that's just because it's an outline. Of course, it's superficial. And he's like, well, what are you investigating? She's like, I'm not investigating anything. He before, asks. Before we go on, I do want to say that 
Yeah, he he's like, you know, violence is innate. And she's just like, that's kind of insane. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And yeah, and yeah, he keeps using the word investigating. And he's trying to get her to admit that she is investigating something. And she's smart enough to know, I see what you're doing. And now I'm kind of freaking out. And then he's like, fine, fuck it. I'll put my cards on the table. And he shows her the security footage of her finding Figueroa, touching him on the face, and taking the tape. He demands the tape from her. But before she can reveal what the tape is, he gets a call. And he's like, it's for you. That's weird. <laughs> it's Chema. And he take, she takes it in his side office area, and he warns her. The teacher Castro, is in on it. Yeah, Castro knows about the tape, and the reason he knows is because he's in it, and he warns her to leave. And Castro eavesdrops on the call because he has that speakerphone device on his desk, so he just listens to it. But she's too quick, and she gets away anyway, and he calls out after her and chases her a little bit, but not not too much. When she runs back into Chema, he shows her the CCTV footage he got from the security guard that shows Castro leaving the little room in the archives when Figueroa was there. Chema had gone down in there and he found more tapes of more torture and murder. And she tells him about the 13 cameras that the school owns. He tells her that, yeah, no, they bought them a long time ago, but they all went missing or a bunch of them went missing. She is determined to find these cameras. Maybe it is the one that Bosco has. Maybe it's not. And Chema's like, don't go alone. Any of that. But she goes anyway. Yolanda stops her at school and tells her, Vanessa didn't disappear. She was murdered. And so Angela's like, okay, tell me the story. She tells her that Bosco and another student were taking a film project a little too seriously Castro was the professor and the friend told Yolanda and Bosco and Vanessa about the concept of a snuff film and claimed, oh, they're actually really easy to make. And that really freaked Yolanda out. Bosco kind of stopped talking to the guy. And then after the class ended, Vanessa disappeared. And so Yolanda thinks that this dude is the one who actually killed Vanessa. She says, you know him. He's your friend with the glasses. It's Chema. So Angela confronts Chema and he says, listen, Bosco is an asshole. I didn't know Yolanda or Vanessa hardly at all. He just started being a dick to me and we haven't talked since. Like, that's all there is to it. And Angela just kind of accepts that as a response. And when he takes her to the dingy hallway where all the snuff films are, she goes with him. What? Chema? Yeah, Angela makes some poor choices at this point in the film. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they go to find the cameras, but in the process, Chema finds the master tapes. And then they hear something, and then the lights go out. They're locked in this hallway, and they can't see. They have a, bo a, a, a book of matches that they keep using. And for whatever reason, Chema decides to tell her a fairy tale. He tells her the story of the princess and the dwarf, which is a book by Oscar Wilde. And it's a tragic story about a beautiful princess and a man who didn't realize that he was, he hideous. was hideous. 
and but he made her laugh. And yeah. that's all she cared about. But he was like, you you could never love me. I'm so hideous. Yeah. And so he kind of dies or he stops moving. They don't actually say. Anyway, he I don't know. He turns to stone. Yeah. And one of the dudes in the court is like, he died of a of a broken heart. He had no more heart left. And so she declares that the only people who are allowed in this kingdom anymore are those without hearts. And that's kind of as far as he gets. Um, and it's really sweet. She uh, ends up lighting her, her sweatshirt sweater. Yeah. or sweater on fire. And when it goes out, he says, goodbye, princess. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he's so in love with her. Yeah, and he he is the dwarf. He realizes he's weird. He's ugly, which he's not, by the way. Oh, no. He is a handsome man. Yeah, he just they, has long, stringy hair. They gave him hair, hair and they gave him glasses. glasses. And, a, and facial hair that's maybe a little bit ratty. But he's he, a handsome dude. Yeah. There are some shots where he just straight up looks like fucking Johnny Depp. Uh-huh. <laughs> without all his nasty hair and without his glasses, he looks like Johnny Depp. He is a good looking man. And I think he's in Abre Los Ojos as well. Yes, he is in Abre Los Ojos. His name is uh, Fede Martinez. And Penelope Cruz is in both of them. Yep. They set things up like this visual language where the light goes out and then he lights a new match. And there are several times where he does, and when the light, because it goes to pitch black, when he lights it, the light comes back on and we see her face. And she's looking at where his face should be, and then cut to, it's him. And they do that, like, twice, maybe slightly a third time, and it's, like, setting you up to expect that the next time that happens, and they frame it in that way, where the light turns on, and we see her... When it cuts to him, it's not going to be him or it's going to be him and somebody else in the darkness. Because when you see him, it's pitch black dark all around him. Uh, but not quite, at least not yet. So they light the sweater on fire. They chat for a bit. They find the editing room and they're like, this this is where all the films are edited. But we're stuck down here and either they're going to come get us to kill us or what? So. They wake up, or at least she wakes up, because the lights turn on, and Chema is gone. It's the next morning, maybe? Uh, the edit there doesn't really solidly imply that a lot of time has passed. There is the implication, but we don't necessarily know. We imagine. Um, and she gets up, and she sees the room all lit up, but there's this other room that's, like, pitch black. And she heads towards it, thinking that maybe Chema is in there. And instead, we see what looks like a VHS tape grain black and white image of Castro gassing a rag and putting it up to her to knock her out. She wakes up tied to a chair and sure enough, Castro's there. And he says, I never killed anybody. I just edit the tapes, but I am going to kill you. And but I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just yes, going to do I'm it. I'm going to make it quick and painless. Uh, if you're looking for your buddy, I have no idea where he is. He was too fast for me. <laughs> and he goes to shoot her. And Chema comes out of nowhere and tackles him. And they're struggling over the gun. And then bang. And then Castro falls down dead. And in this kerfuffle. Yeah. Chema just straight up punches the camera. <laughs> yes, at the end. He's so angry. He just punches the camera over. And then they run out. So she ends. She makes it home and her dad's sleeping on the couch. 
And her dad's like, oh, I, I thought you'd be out with your sister and Bosco. She's like, well, I'm sorry, what? So we know there are multiple people involved because Castro's like, I only do the editing. I've never killed anybody. So we're like, oh, then it has to be Bosco, right? So she's like, shit. Senna, my sister, is with Bosco right now, and he was flirting with her before. She's going to be the next victim at this rate. And so she tracks them down to the club and tries to convince Senna. The club looks awesome, by the way. Yeah, it does. I totally want to go there. Get out of here. And she's like, why? And Angela, quick thinking, is like, uh, because Bosco is mine, bitch. Uh, like, not like that bitchy, it's, but like, it's more I'm dating like a, he's using you. Here, I'll show you. And she goes onto the dance floor and makes out with him. So her m- sister leaves in a huff. Yes. And then she leaves saying she's going to go to the bathroom and she runs out of the club instead. Bosco ends up catching her and they make out and I think they fuck. Uh, but again, we don't necessarily know that. The next day, Angela goes to Chema and tries to convince him to go to the police. He says no because, quote, the police don't like him. Like, huh, what's that about then? And he goes to take a shower because he finally agrees, fine. I better look nice, otherwise they're not going to take me seriously. I'm going to go take a shower. And he hops in the shower. And he leaves her alone in the room. And she's like, well, I better find the masters because we're going to go to the cops. And instead, she finds a battery pack for a Sony camera. Oh, fuck. Okay, so she looks all around and... She finds his camera hidden in the closet and she attaches the battery, turns it on, and she sees like stalker footage of her through her window. He was but he's filming her uh, as she kisses Bosco because his image is on the screen of the interview they did. She kisses that uh, while she's sleeping and she disappears when he gets out of the shower she's gone but the camera's out and he's like fuck and she wants to go to the police but at this point she's worried that chema is a part of it and the skeletons are part of it and even though even though chema kind of creeps her out right now he also did just save her life right but is it all because he does care about her but he's still a killer etc um she's very torn So she runs home and Senna says that someone called and thought that Senna was Angela. They called her a whore and they threatened to kill her. And when she's like, I got to find out who it is. I think I might know who it is because Chema knows that she found the camera and all of that. Senna's like, no, you don't understand. It was a girl. We cut to Bosco driving his motorcycle to this big house and we overhear an answering machine message from Yolanda who's like, you can't, I saw you with that whore at the club. You can't break it off with me like this. I am capable of anything. Angela runs to Bosco's cause now she's worried about Yolanda uh, to his weekend house. Apparently he goes there on the weekends and his parents only use it during the summer. So he's there by himself and somebody's watching her. Somebody's following her. And we're like, fuck Yolanda's following her. He tells her that Yolanda threatened basically all the girls he's ever talked to and not to take her seriously. And Angela asks, well, does that include Vanessa? And his response is, well, there was never anything between me and Vanessa. 
And so Angela wants to end the relationship. He wants to continue it. And then the lights go out. They look outside. They can see there's lights outside. So he's like, oh, the fuse. I'm going to go find a fuse. You stay here. Uh, He lights a match for a candle. And we see a hand coming out of the darkness. That shot that we were anticipating earlier in the movie. Come and grab his face. Angela goes looking for him and finds him sprawled out on the floor. Uh, He had been hit in the head. And then Chema appears behind her, saying, I've come to save you again. At which point Bosco jumps up and tackles him, and they're fighting on the floor. And he, like, snaps his neck. But (laughs) doesn't. Right, because realistically, you can't snap somebody's neck like that. Our neck muscles are too strong for that. You can't just snap somebody's neck by grabbing them by the chin and then pulling. So every time that's in a movie, that's bullshit? Yes. It's a lot of movies that have done bullshit. Yes. Because <laughs> we just kind of accept that now. But Chema is really, really injured because Bosco just beats the shit out of him. And then he goes to get some some rope. And Yolanda's like, Chema, what happened? What did you do? And all he does is just whisper, garage. Because earlier in the film... When they were first watching the snuff film, he was like, that looks like a garage. And she, of course, was like, why the fuck does that matter? It matters, bitch. Yeah, she, when Bosco comes back with the rope, she goes into the garage and she notices. Oh, my God. It looks. When she walks down those stairs, I wrote, what the fuck are you doing? Why the fuck are you going downstairs? What the fuck? Stop. Oh, my God. Stop. Well, because in her mind right now, Chema, the guy who's obsessed with her and who's been stalking her, has come to attack them. And Bosco saved her life. But Chema, I've come to save you again. He may be weird and he may be violating her privacy, but he literally was there to save her. And so she goes to the garage she notices and then he comes to the garage he closes and the, the garage door is door. open yes the door is open people and she's just but she's standing like flabbergasted like, huh? yeah what? he comes I in went and- from being a really intelligent character <laughs> to suddenly not being one and he closes the garage door with her still inside then he grabs her from behind and says i'm going to kill you Cut to her tied up. But she has a knife in her She does, which begs the question. She was in the kitchen earlier with the knife. Yeah, they showed her getting it. Right. How did he tie up her hands and not see the knife? It's an excellent question. Unanswered. Because you're like, oh, yeah, she did have a knife. But you don't think how didn't. Yeah. So in the moment, I didn't think of it. But now I'm like, wait a minute. How did he not see that knife? But he shows her Yolanda's dead body. He killed Yolanda, and then he sets up the camera and tells her what he's going to do, and it's very graphic. But he's going to beat her unconscious, cut her arms and legs, then wing, kind of wing it from there. He describes all the things that he could potentially do. As he gets closer, she gets up, but only slices at his cheek, and then tries to run away. And as he's grabbing at her, she grabs a gun that I guess she had in her bag and pulls it on him. He goes to grab the gun, and she fires. We see it from the point of view of the camera. It's very obvious what was going on. It's very obvious that he was reaching out for her. And it's a really amazing shot of her just fucking shooting him right in the head. 
cut to TV show Justice and the Law. <laughs> They're doing a report on what they call the Snuff Girls case, where some 200 cases of women, young women disappearing and being murdered in a snuff film. Angela visits Chema in the hospital where they're watching this TV show and gives him a copy of The Princess and the Dwarf, the Oscar Wilde book. And he's like, I already have it. And he's like, well, this one is, is it has a special dedication. And he throws it because he wants to pretend like he's not interested. Right. Yeah. He explains that he got the camera when he went down to the hallway the first time before she went down there. And eventually she leaves. She's like, okay. She believes him. All right. You're not interested. Fine. Yeah. Because he's being kind of standoffish. But his glasses were destroyed by Bosco earlier. So he asked one of the old men in the room with him to read the inscription. And he reads everything on the page. And he's like, just get to the inscription. And he just kind of breezes over. Fancy a coffee. In the middle of all of this text. And Chema identifies that as the inscription and he gets up and he runs after her and they go to leave the hospital together. And as they're slowly walking down the hallway, they're looking in all the rooms where all the patients are watching this program on TV. Statement time. Yes. (laughs) They're watching this report on TV. It's describing how they got their hands on a copy of one of the tapes, how macabre and disgusting the images are. And now... Here are those images. And everyone's watching. Cut to a text warning on the screen about the graphic nature of the images they're about to show. Credits. This movie has a message. <laughs> now, I know they built to the conclusion about, like, desensitization yes. and the effect that it had. Okay. I know it's the 90s when that was a real big craze about violence in media. But I wish everything didn't kind of culminate in something kind of lame. It didn't age very well in its in its coolness, its lameness, that it thinks it's giving you a message and it's a really heavy handed one. Um, but it does. It does have a clear thesis. The yeah. movie thesis does have a very clear thesis. Yes. They are the newly adjusted ones. He has changed from who he used to be, which was this man obsessed with violence and willing to stalk her. And now he's going to put that all behind him. And they have rejected this culture of violent media, and they're going to go have a coffee and be social with each other. That's the preferred method of interaction, not staring at a TV and getting desensitized to violence. It's kind of the thesis of this movie. But that is the plot. Kelsey, lightning round. Like we said, it was really difficult to put, like, thoughts. Basically... I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. I thought compelling, it, thrilling. Yes, very compelling and you're you found I found myself like hooked like oh what's going to happen, you know? I knew that it was the teacher pretty early on, both Chris right. and I said that. Mm-hmm. Bosco, I was really on the fence about and then I was really unclear on Chema's interaction with these people. Yes. I... He was just an edgelord. That's all he was. That's all he was? Yeah. Is the, inter- is the implication that he was somehow involved? No. I was think Yolanda he walks out of involved? this... I don't think so, but that is left kind of open-ended. It, 
a lot of little open-ended things, and I think that that stems from the fact that there were so many threads going on in this yeah, movie. Yeah, and twists, and then twists on twists, like I said. And so it's, yeah, it. I'm left wondering, was Chema somehow involved? Was Yolanda involved? Is Angela really the only innocent one of this movie? Did um, Figueroa know about it or not? Exactly. Yeah. How did Figueroa find out about it? Lots of little questions, but that doesn't make me dislike the movie. Not at all. It's very intriguing in that way. And it's not like open questions where you're really like pissed that the movie didn't answer it. Right. Exactly. And the characters are very interesting Although Angela does make dumb decisions from time to time, they're human decisions, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, her her trust in Bosco is irritating, but it's also because she's so attracted to him. Yeah. And, and he's a handsome man, and, too. And people get blinded by attraction mm-hmm. all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> all the time, whether you want to admit it or not. <laughs> and it makes you do stupid things. I love the character... I loved all the characters, and I thought it was really interesting and very compelling, and it le- it kept you wondering who's a part of it, who's not. Yeah, and no- none of the twists felt unearned. No. They were, like... They felt natural. Yeah, they felt really natural. It didn't feel like I was watching a movie and like, oh, there's the twist. Yeah, no, it's almost like you think about it being a twist in retrospect. Yes. It comes so naturally. Yes. You're like, oh, yeah, that was a twist. That Chemo really was showing up to save her. Yeah. And Bosco, acting like he's going to save her, is actually the one to threaten her. This is already an inversion of an earlier assumption that you're making. And it just all kind of comes so naturally that it's very, very skillful. I can see how how this person wrote Vanilla Sky. Although Vanilla Sky is much more metaphorical, the way that events happen and kind of fold in on themselves is like an escalation of what we see of the plot here. Well, I've never seen the Spanish version. I don't think there's huge variation. I wonder how different the ending is. I imagine the the ending itself is probably a lot more different because American audiences are idiots and the general public want everything written out for them. And that's exactly what that movie does at the very end. And I am fine with that. No, it's a fine ending, but it is like the last (laughs) 10 minutes is just, okay, let's just explain to you what the rest of this movie was, what was actually going on. Yes, I... I like Vanilla Sky. I would like to see Abre Los Ojos. So. so would I. Yeah. And I would like, yeah, because I wonder if if Abre Los Ojos has as many questions like as this one does. And it's mm-hmm. just like, that's not the story we're telling you. Right. You know, those are other stories, and but they're not they're not happening within the one you're seeing now. Yeah. And so you don't get that explanation. Like we said. You should watch this <laughs> yeah. if you can find it. If you can find it. If you can – like, it's not available anywhere streaming. You might be able to find a DVD because there was a special edition release. I don't know if there were any Region 1 releases for it, though, which is North America. So you might need to import a DVD version of it. We just stole it. <laughs> If you're a fan of 8mm, you should certainly see this. Yeah, 8mm is like a I have grim, a theory. dark version of this. I have a theory that 8mm is just a rewritten version. 8mm is an adult man 
looking or who finds a snuff film and wants to find out. So the finding yeah. a snuff film and wanting to find out who's in it and and how it was made and and track down the killer that's the similarity between these two and that's kind of it that is so not true that's been a long time since i've seen eight millimeter joaquin phoenix is you think it's chema is chema yeah because there's somebody who knows i mean there has to be somebody who knows what's going on to tell the main character and the audience like that's a common trope of all films where you're in an environment that is unfamiliar to your audience. I'll write you an essay, honey. Okay. I'll compare the two. Okay. Well, we should watch 8mm sometime. It's on the list. Okay, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to see it for a long time, but it's on the list. All right. Um, Anything else to say? No. What do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? 67. 71. No consensus because there's only seven reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Overrated or underrated? Mm, Just slightly underrated. I would agree, but what would you think it should get? I was going to give it like a 74. Yeah, I I was going to say like a 76. I think I'll leave it at 76. I think that's good. Yeah, it's it's a very good movie. I'm a stupid American. It would be better if it was in English. <laughs> I think it would be better only because it would be a lot easier for me to follow because I'm a stupid American. I wonder if it would be easier for you to follow if you would have seen more things coming and it would have made the experience worse for you. I don't know. Because if you know the ending to something, that's different than figuring out the ending of something. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm curious. You know me. I hate knowing what's hap- what's going to happen at the end. Yes, I do. I know that. But I will fully admit that Hereditary is the first time that I I said I now understand people who would prefer knowing what the ending is before you get there. Yeah. Because that made that movie so much more enjoyable. <laughs> um, just like maybe with us. I mean, I knew what was going to happen at the end of this, but I wasn't sure until they told me, right? You know what I mean? Right, yeah. uh I could have been wrong the whole time. Maybe you might like it better seeing it a second time. Yes. Yeah. This, I really don't think it was not knowing. It was just, it's just hard. It's just hard to follow a movie with so many things going on. Oh, and they talk fast. Not as fast as in kill me, please. Good Lord. But I mean, there's a lot more stuff of substance, um, I'm saying, right? Like, they get through a lot more conversation that's actually chunky, and it's meaningful, and there's stuff there. Whereas in Kill Me Please, it's a lot more ephemeral. (laughs) Uh, And there's a lot of metaphoric stuff going on in in Kill Me Please. Mm -hmm. Um, Which would be a good segue if we weren't also going to do... Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. <laughs> the house in 2015's We Are Still Here needs fresh souls every how many years? Oh, God, it could be anything. 25. 30. Damn. Pennywise popping out again. Uh-huh. Well, Pennywise is 27. <laughs> I know that one. All right, Kelsey, this might trick you or you might know it immediately. What is the name of the entity communicating with the youngest Freeling child 
in Poltergeist 1982. It's not just the beast, right? That's not what it says. It's the beast. <laughs> they never give she it a name said, other than I that. know that's exactly why I was racking uh-huh. my brain uh-huh. and I'm like sitting here I'm like it's, it can't be the beast she says that like as a as just a way to get them to understand yeah. what's happening uh-huh. in their home yeah it has been using her to restrain the others to her it simply is another child to us, it is the beast. Now let's go get your daughter. Fucking stupid ass As, question. What's her name, Zelda? The actress's name is Zelda Rubenstein. The character's name is Tangina. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say Zelda. That, that's what name. she says to them. Yeah. All right, Kelsey, moving on to 2015's Mateme Por Favor, or Kill Me Please, written and directed by Anita Rocha da Silveira. Could be butchering that. I don't know. It is her first feature after she did three different shorts. I think it's her only feature. Starring Valentina Hersage, Dora Freind, Mariana Oliveira, and uh, Julia Roliz. Or it might be Julia because this is, it's in Brazil. It takes place in a small town called Barada Tijuca which is just outside of Rio de Janeiro and that has a J in it and it's J. So might be Julia. I don't know. What is kill me please about a very depressed young lady lives in a town where there is a current serial killer and her and her friends are very interested in learning about it. And that's it. Yeah. And Everything is in Brazilian Portuguese because it takes place in Brazil, which is a much harder language for us to understand than Spanish is. Even though it took place in Spain, it's Spanish. So we have a lot of exposure to Spanish, a lot easier to to follow along and get context clues from that. It's a lot more difficult to understand Portuguese. Especially when they go long periods of not saying a fucking word and then all of a sudden... Did you get all that? I hope you did. Yeah. Because if you were reading the white words at the bottom of the screen that are teeny tiny. And and put against a backdrop of more white. white. <laughs> like everything is like super overexposed because they're outdoors in the daytime. And so you just cannot read these subtitles. And that's that's combined with the fact that. We, you had to rent it on YouTube. That's the only place you can get it streaming legally. And so I, I rented it on YouTube and there's an option to change. YouTube has tons of options to change the way captions look. <laughs> we go through this whole thing to change the way the captions look and <laughs> come to find out that the YouTube captions are closed captioning for the death or hard of hearing. They're not translations. So it's only going to make like describe you when music is playing or when shuffling is happening or stuff like that. 
the language, the actual speech is built into the film and you can't do anything about that. And it was a miserable experience. <laughs> it was so annoying. Like whoever did the subtitles for this just didn't want it to do well in, in a, another country outside of Brazil, apparently, because they didn't even bother to fucking watch it <laughs> and notice that you can't read a goddamn word. <laughs> but we managed to. Imagine that added on to the fact that we're trying to write down our thoughts. Mm-hmm. Should people watch it? If you like art house movies. It's so art house. And in a roll your eyes way. Yes. I feel bad because I feel like this is a fil- a new filmmaker trying new things out. Oh, yeah. Wanting to do something unique. And there's some impressive stuff in this movie, too. But unfortunately, a lot of it when you're new to something and you want to try everything out, mm-hmm. it feels amateur because you don't know how to use it properly and you don't know when to use it. Yeah, you also, I think, might think you have some profound concept and not realize that you have no idea how to end it. <laughs> and I think Chris if did you... did not like the ending of this movie. <laughs> if you take the risk of watching this movie... I think you're going to walk away with a feeling of dissatisfaction. I'll get into why that may be intentional or may not, and whether even if it is intentional, it's good or not at the end when we actually get through I what, think what the happens in the plot. I think the ending is pretty intentional, honey. So do I. Okay. But we'll get into that when we actually get to the end. I wouldn't recommend that you watch this. If I had to make a recommendation one way or the other, uh, if you're starving for something to watch and it has to be a foreign film and you're really, really into this artsy stuff, then I'd maybe put this kind of far down on the list. I know. I can think of so many better Japanese art house movies that are just a million times better. Yeah. And yeah. This. But that I mean, that's what's I think a little bit frustrating is because um, Anita Rocha da Silveri, Silveira has a lot of talent for this being her first feature film. She really, really does a great job of like capturing an emotion with the camera, I think, and with some more exercise making more films, maybe doing stuff that's a little bit more literal and less metaphorical. I think she could be an incredibly, she is incredibly talented, but there's a lot of promise there. And I've said this before, this just isn't the movie that is her masterpiece. No. Even though it was a, it was screened at, uh, there's a Rio film festival, which is where it was screened and it did incredibly well. I don't think, it's that great. <laughs> you can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2015's Kill Me, Please. Nope, there wasn't one for this guy either. All right, Kelsey, you know what we do. Can you get us started? 
on Kill Me Please. We open on a close-up of a woman who... Is, like, sad at a party? Mm, I think you're supposed to think she's a, a, a streetwalker. You think? Yeah. Okay. Based on her makeup, her clothing. Right, but she's at a party. She's there's in like, front of a club. There's a bunch of people outside hanging out and stuff like that, and she's just removed from them. I think it's very possible that what you're saying is true, but, I mean, she has makeup on, and there's a bunch of other people who are out clubbing, like... She... It's just that she's also alone. She's obviously not sober. Right, but she leaves with a drink, as in she was in the club and got a drink. But she does, like, stop and look at cars like she's kind of expecting them to pull over. Sure, okay. But basically, she's obviously inebriated, and she's walking home alone or something. And we spend a lot of time just looking at her face, and, like, we see a single tear go down, Mm. and, like... This movie really wanted to take its time with its shots. It was not afraid to just sit on a frame for a long period of time. Right. And Kelsey noted earlier that when you're dealing with a foreign language film and like their names and stuff like that are harder to pick out of the language and you're you have to read everything and you're trying to take notes at the same time characters looking distinct is very very helpful so when one of the plot elements is that there are a lot of people that you're going to see that look like one of the main characters it really kind of makes things difficult to understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there are going to be a lot of people that we see that are going to end up murder victims that are like like the movie points out look like our main character Yes. So it that we might get confused from time to time if we're actually looking at the main character or not. It's mm-hmm. so just FYI. But also, like Kelsey says, the movie is not afraid to linger on shots. And you know me, I love a patient camera. But if that's all there is to it, I wonder, are you wasting my time? Mm-hmm. But anyway. And continue. did you feel that your time was wasted here? I have thoughts about this movie. I want to say, like I said before the jump, I think that the director and the cinematographer are very talented and that this is absolutely not their masterpiece. They should go on to do other things and improve because they've got the style down and there's just no substance there. So we watch this girl walking and then out of nowhere, she starts to get scared. Like we can't see at all what she's looking at. She looks behind her several times. She starts to run. She starts to scream. She trips and then she passes out. Yeah. And And then she wakes up. We don't get to see the assailant. No. She wakes up and she looks at the camera and then she just screams and screams and screams. And then cut to black and then we get the title, Kill Me Please. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we get to meet the group of girls that we're going to follow throughout the rest of the movie. So Bia, <laughs> Bia. main girl. Yeah. Mari. Mari. The dancer. Yes. Michelle, the red-haired, kind of crazy, the wacky one. The one who gets the yes. really bad the herpes. herpes. Yes. She gets the herp. And Renata. Who they just treat like shit. Yes. Okay. Those are our four main characters. Renata is like essentially like the fat, ugly friend. Which she's makes, really not. It makes zero sense. Yeah. Because she's 
her weight is just fine. But I mean, I think this whole entire movie is about being a teen girl. Yes. And that she's going to feel this way regardless of whether it's true or not. Because, like, in contrast to her friends, she is the big one. Exactly. She in is the holier one. to her friends, she is the not-so-attractive one. And but so whether or not it's true, she's feeling that way. So that's why she's characterized. And they treat her that way. Yeah. They uh-huh. treat her like the fat friend that they can just be shitty to. Teenage girls are the effing worst. So... Like I said, there, this this movie is really, really patient, and it just talks for extended periods of time about stuff that does not matter. So I think we're going to kind of try to breeze through this plot a little bit. Well, let's let's describe which what each character is like. So Bia is the super depressed one. She and they're all kind of interested in the macabre, but it's mainly her. And Michelle, Michelle, yeah. that are most interested in it. Michelle tells these stories just to freak the girls out. As a matter of fact, first time we meet all of them, Michelle is telling her friends about a dream she had where a guy basically rapes and kills her. Yes. And Mari seems like she's the most uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I think she goes along with it because her friends are into it, but I think it makes mm-hmm. her the most uncomfortable. And I think that Renata mostly hangs out with them because she wants to be popular. Yeah. But her friends treat her like shit. And by the end, they all end up with bruises or, you know, things like like literal ones that reflect how damaging it can be to be a young girl in the modern day. Okay, that's the painfully obvious thesis of this movie. Yeah, these girls are just bored and have nothing else to do. Right. We see them do nothing at PE while other people are playing. They just sit and hang out, which later on we see them actually participating in PE for some reason. Playing a game that we have no idea what it is. <laughs> it's like dodgeball or something. At but one it's point. not. It's not dodgeball. They're throwing a ball at well, each other. Oh, but no, like, that it's one, supposed to be like. It's like it's like soccer meets basketball. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Then we see Bia and her boyfriend. I can't remember his name. Well, wait. Wait, wait, before we move on. Okay. So, yeah. So, she tells her this story. And then there also, we also discovered that this place that they hang out is where that woman that we just saw die was stabbed to death. Yeah. So, they like to be around this tragedy because this is probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened in their town. Yeah. Is that there's a serial killer. And so, it's like... Something to interest them because they're just so bored and with their lives. And so the movie feels the need to bore you, the audience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then there's there's Bia and her boyfriend. And Bia is kind of obsessed with sex, but I don't think it has anything really to do with her, you know, libido. I think it's more that she's bored and mm-hmm. she sees other people having sex and she's like, maybe that will make life worthwhile. Maybe that will make life exciting. Yeah. But her boyfriend is super religious and like even though you desperately wants to because he's a teenage boy he also feels really guilty about it but he also seems to genuinely care about Bia yeah but there's this weird subplot where all the young boys in town are like super religious because there's this like pastor lady <laughs> who's like young and has and big tits and yeah. like you know and, and is, uses that to her advantage. Yes, and does like really superficial sermons and See then do- breaks out in song and dance nice. for Jesus.
so all the young men, except for Bia's brother, Zhao, none of the men have any sort of like character or agency or anything in this movie because that's not what this movie is about. But they're all like basically cookie cutter men. And they all do and act and think the same exact way. And they're all obsessed with this hot pastor lady. So anyway, Bia has this weird brother, Zhao, and he hogs the computer all the time. And we find out this is because he has some sort of obsession obsession with this young lady. That they never really explain. But what I gathered is that they went on like a date. Yeah. And the girl was creeped out by him. Well, we don't know that yet. All we know is that he's contacting her and he's getting no response. Yes. And so he spends a bulk of this movie hogging the family laptop staying online in the hopes that she messages him back and he can find out what's happening because she basically we find out later she ghosted him and he doesn't know that but she looks a lot like the women who are dying in his town and his sister and his sister which is why the movie for a large portion especially when he's the only male character that the camera focuses on at all We actually get him alone at some points in the movie, and none of the girls are there. So you think, oh, he must be an important part of this movie. Uh, So it's like the movie is telling you, is he the killer? Yeah, you're wondering that for the majority of the film. Is he obsessed with his sister, and since he can't have her, he takes out his frustrations on other women in town? And at the same time, Mari... Is really into her brother. Yes. But he is just not even aware of He doesn't her even register that. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. But Bia does. And before the end of the film, Bia is going to get real mad about it. Yeah. Prob- and honestly, I don't think she actually gives a shit. I think it's just something. Something to feel. Like, throughout this entire movie, Bia is just determined to feel something. Yeah. Because she feels like she's dead already. Yeah. And so she kind of wants to be killed almost just to feel what death would feel like. Yeah. Throughout the movie, people talk about multiple murders. Somebody talks about how they found a new body. Some people have seen pictures of this body and comment on how it looks like Bia. The girls tell a conversation about summoning somebody called the bathroom blonde. So kind of like... Candyman or Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Yeah. They shop. Zhao is obsessed with staying on this laptop. The girl never responds to him. But one night we see Bia walking home alone in the dark. I wrote down. Panicking and running. And then I immediately wrote down, or maybe it's another girl who looks like her. Which is ultimately even more confusing because then it cuts to a different scene and we never see what happens to this girl. I think... What it is, is it's another victim we see in the similar circumstances. But I thought it was Bia, because part of the plot is that they look alike. So it's a little bit confusing, but then we do later find out that, oh, they found another body. So I think it was just another victim. The girls find a dead pigeon, Mm -hmm. and they just kind of look at it. Yeah, they (laughs) stare at it. Before that, though, there's a scene with, and this sucked. Because there were no fucking subtitles. There's like a dance scene with Mari. So that's why I keep calling her the dancer. Yeah. she She's like on the dance team at school. And they're doing this whole... Choreographed dance. Choreographed dance to a song, much like in 
Bring It On, the one yeah. that I'm always talking about. It's a lot like that, only I have no idea what they're saying because they didn't bother to give to you subtitles. The song. Yeah. And there's it's a whole sequence and you're just sitting there like, this is cool. We get to see some kids doing choreographed dance, which is immediately cut short. Because a rock gets thrown through a window. And Mari's response is the most interesting part of this. She just kind of, everyone scatters. And she just kind of stops. And stares at the camera. Yeah. And it's almost like the director is speaking to the audience, like, saying, violence doesn't scare me. I'm not afraid of what can happen to me. I'm bored by this. I'm numb. She went from being extremely happy and upbeat when everyone was around her to when everyone was gone and then staring at the camera like, this is how I really feel at all times. Mm -hmm. But then later, they bring it up. And earlier in the film, Michelle was telling a story about some ghost inside their school. And later, Mari says that it's supposed to be the ghost the girl was talking about that threw... The rock through the window. Yeah, uh-huh. And they do that a lot. Like, they'll tell stupid ghost stories, and then they'll bring it up later. And I don't know if it's because of just getting lost in the translation or what, but, like, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's just like, are we supposed to think a ghost through a rock through yeah, a window? It's just the conversations that these young girls are having. It It's all characterization. That's all it is. Also, throughout this movie, there will be several times where I think it's Renata will read the poetry that they're supposed to be doing. Or no, is it Bia? It's Bia, isn't it? I don't remember. It's either Bia or Renata, but I, I kind of think now it might be Bia. But anyway, they keep reading poetry for their language arts class. And the poetry is beautiful. But the only person who seems to think so is the person who's reading it. Everyone else is like, God, what does that even mean? You know, like, or yeah. so boring or Being dumb. teenagers responding to poetry. Yeah. Exactly. But the only, like I said, I think it might be Bia. She's the only one who seems to find solace there. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, why don't we see more of that? Why don't we see more of her trying out other things? Yeah, where to- she can find interest. So it's a little confusing because it's like, you're trying to paint this picture of a girl who hates the and hates everything and is numbed by everything, but she does find beauty in poetry. So why doesn't she just plunge herself into poetry? I don't know. Which she doesn't. We kind of don't get it. It's just like three times the in the movie yeah, that they uh-huh. do this. So they go they go to this church session and the pastor lady sings a dance song about Jesus kicking it with them. And this is where they find out that there's another body found, the one I talked about earlier. The yeah, next- one of the girls, like, runs in and stops everyone, telling them there's another body. <laughs> and then, of course, everybody leaves, because that's way more interesting yeah. than going to church. On another day, they find these four girls, our characters, find another body, but this woman is still alive. Bia stays with her while the other others go get to we help. Get tragedy girls moment. Yeah, and... Bia ends up kissing her, what looks like on the cheek, no. but she gets, it. Um, that's what I'm saying. It's straight on the lips. But that's not the way it's framed in the camera. It's it's really unclear until she pulls away and you can see that there's blood, which was all around the woman's mouth, is now on Bia's lips. And then this woman dies. Now, what happened here, we don't know, because Bia gets all the way home and still has the blood on her lips, so... 
did they come back with people to help or did she just leave before anybody came back? We do not know. She walks home and then she hears sirens, which implies she just left the dead body there. She doesn't ever wipe the blood off her lips. Then we get a shot where she looks in the mirror for a while and then turns away and walks away. And then the camera stays on the mirror. I say mirror in quotes because you can't see the camera. I honestly think it's just a pane of glass. And then Bio was on the other side of it from the camera to make it look like a mirror. And then blood just starts dripping down it, eventually turning the whole entire screen red. Yeah. And this is when I wrote down, when did this become a surrealistic art piece? Yes. And it doesn't capitalize on that very much. It does it like twice. Yeah. What do you think they're trying to say there? Just like, is that representative of her obsession with... Well, this is the part where I started to wonder if maybe she was, like, schizophrenic or something. Mm -hmm. But she walked away, and then the blood happened. Uh, Yeah, I know. Which implies she's not seeing it. I'm just saying, like, that's when I was starting to wonder, like, does she have a grip on reality? Has she become an unreliable narrator at this point? Or is it... Or is it because this is a story about young girls in high school? Is it all about menstruation? Or is it simply a metaphor for we all we're all dead anyway? Yeah. The movie does not seem interested in guiding you down an interpretive path. It just shows you a bunch of images like a Rorschach test, and you get from it what you want to get from it. I think there's value to that, but it also seems kind of lazy. And it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. You didn't start this movie out making me think this was going to be an art piece. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're giving it to me. And she tells her boyfriend that she gave this person mouth to mouth, which we know isn't true. But she says to her boyfriend, there's a parable being read in church about uh, uh, Elisha and the bears from Second Kings, which basically the point is if you mock the prophet, you mock who sent the prophet. So when a prophet walks by and these kids make fun of the prophet, then some bears come out and maul the kids. And there's this woman in the audience who's all stressed out about like it's basically – this is like the effect of religion on impressionable minds, you know, where it's like they're they're scared if they don't follow their religion, what might happen to them? Because that's what this parable is about. Like, you better take God seriously or a bear will maul you to death. Yeah. And the fact that she's saying this right after all these deaths. Right. Makes she's basically saying clear. that ungodly young women yes. are being killed. Yes. Yes. So. We keep seeing throughout this, Bia is staring at this random pretty girl making out with somebody. We also see her at one point, Mari changes at her house, and Bia kind of stares at her while she's changing. So Bia has, like, even though she has a boyfriend, she has sex with him all the time, and she- She does not have sex with him. They do sexual acts. They don't actually have sex. Oh, I thought the first scene we saw them in, they were having sex. No, he was going down on her. Oh, okay. They go down on each other, but they don't have sex because he thinks that that keeps It's the pure. religious thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're right. You're right. But anyway, she she obviously has these, like, homosexual feelings about the pretty again, women around her. it could have, like I said with him, I don't think it has anything to do with her sexuality. I think it just has to do with her being like, if I have exciting. sex, maybe something, I'll feel something. Yeah. She yeah. just wants something in her life. Well, this comes to a head at one point, and I think it supports that that feeling. So they go to the popular girl's quinceanera, I think. I don't know if, what you would call it in Brazil. She's turning 15. 
Yeah. So it has to, it's it's whatever Brazil or Argentina's version of quinceanera is. It's it's just like sweet 16 here in America. Yeah. And of course, if you live in America, then you well, especially California, I guess, then you probably you definitely know what a quinceanera is. Yeah. It's just a huge party for a girl. It's like a debutante party. Yeah. Basically. And we should mention here that earlier in the film, they were out shopping. And yes. Renata had come up to them. And so Renata kind of dresses like a boy, like very masculine. She wears big loose shirts and yeah. Uh-huh. Because she's uncomfortable with her body. Yeah. And so she goes to her friends and she's like, hey, should I wear this? And her friends just say, you can't pull that off. Right. But th- and they don't show us Thinking what happens. Thinking they're being good, honest friends with her. I don't think so. I think no, they have every th- intention I of think- hurting her feelings. No, I think that I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think their intention could be that they want to hurt her. Like, who are you that you think you can pull that off? But I think this is framed in such a way where they think they're being honest with her. And that makes them good friends. I think those two things are happening at the same time. So she, we don't see what happens. And at this party, she shows up in the dress and she's actually very pretty. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, is she slightly overweight? Sure, it is not a problem. But apparently the boys in this town don't think so because none of them are talking to her. And it's really sad. Yeah. And everyone's kind of awkward and lonely a little bit at this party. And we see a couple of things happen. Bia goes to make out with her boyfriend in like a hallway or something like that. Again, at which point she chokes him and he freaks out and leaves. He basically calls her a freak. Michelle makes out with the birthday girl's date, who was a hired Navy man who was just like there. I guess he makes money to make appearances or something like that. And gave her herpes. Yes, he ends up giving her herpes, but she continues a relationship with him and ultimately ends up getting herpes. Renata wears that dress they say she couldn't pull off. Madi has no one to dance with, probably because she's watching Zhao the whole night, who is also there. And then there's a fire and everyone runs out. For no reason and to no end. We should also mention that before this, there was a weird interaction between the girl whose party it was and Bia. Yeah. At school. Yeah. Like it was this weird thing where there was an understanding that these girls were going to be there because kind of everyone was invited. But the popular girl like thought that she wasn't going and that that was some kind of power play move. Yeah. And Bia's like, no, I'm going. And then that was like the scene. What the fuck was the point of that? I feel like maybe the director is showing how silly and pointless teenage issues are. And, and I think that's, that's more fuel for that. This is just about adolescence. And and what it's like to be a young girl and all the relationships that you have with various people and the emotions that you have. That's everything that this movie is. And unfortunately, that makes it pretty dull. Yes. Yes, it does. So, okay. You notice we're not talking a lot about all the murders that are happening. That's because the movie doesn't talk about them very much. They're pretty ancillary. Yes. You could take them out of this movie entirely and it wouldn't affect the plot whatsoever. So, anyway... On their way home at one point, I think it's Bia and Zhao, it's like sunrise, and they're sitting on the hood of his car, and they're listening to the nightly program on the radio station, and it says, Dawn is upon Baratajuka, Baradatajuka, and that marks the end of our nightly program. These are frightful times, times of terror, of nightmare. 
It is wise to be careful now. Walk in groups and avoid staying out at night. And remember, behind the sweetest face, a killer may lie inside. In the words of serial killer Ted Bundy, we are your friends, we are your neighbors, we are everywhere. Good morning and until we meet again after midnight. And the idea that the killer could be anyone is true, but not addressed in any way, shape, or form any other time in the movie. At this point, Kelsey asked me if I wasn't liking it. (laughs) I said, I wish the captions were easier to read. I said, I wish I knew what was important and what wasn't because I'm trying to write down plot elements. Some of this stuff seems completely unimportant. And until I find out later, most of it's unimportant. (laughs) But then again, I think that they, that may end up being part of the point, right? Like, yeah. Part of me likes the patience of the camera. Part of me worries it's a long way of telling a short story, which it very much is. Yes. But it's pretty, and I like the music. I did like like the music. I wrote that. I really like the soundtrack. (laughs) That's like how I'm feeling at this point in the movie. The family dog barks at Bia, and this happens a couple of times. The dog is disquieted by Bia, and there's no explanation as to why. When the dog starts barking at her, and remember, this is after we've started to see kind of the weird surrealist shit. Yeah. I was starting to wonder, has she gone insane? Yeah. Ha- has she become the killer? Is she the killer? Yeah. Right. Like, uh-huh. is, is this like a split personality thing going on? What's happening? Schizophrenia? What is it? It's none of those things. No. So then we see a group of kids playing a variation on the game Mafia or Werewolf, if you've ever seen it. And Michelle, who is the storyteller of the group who loves the attention of being the storyteller and telling people scary stories and stuff like that. She's the narrator in this. If you've never played Mafia or Werewolf, it's about secret killers in a small society. And the narrator actually doesn't get to play. The narrator knows everything and tells the story as it goes along. There's another murder, this time of a 15-year-old, and Bia goes to the funeral, which is kind of minor. (laughs) And we keep getting time with the brother He's devastated, obsessed, and depressed. This time in the movie, he's singing and crying while we watch Bia in slow-mo at this funeral. And then she touches the lips of this dead girl through her shroud. Again, we see Bia at what looks like an indoor pool, and then blood comes out of her mouth. And then this faded, cross-faded into a POV shot of Zhao driving at night. And then we see a different girl... And then we cut to Bia looking at something through a fence. There's going to be several moments where we see Bia looking through a fence until at one point she crawls through the fence. This is this can only be a metaphor because we never find out what's on the other side of that fence. She's crossing into adulthood. Yeah, yeah, I would assume so. The next day, Bia is staring again at this girl making out with her boyfriend. Just all sorts of PDA. Renata yells at her to do something with the ball. And so Bia just throws it at Renata and hits her right in the fucking face. And Renata is just gushing blood. Her nose is broken. But everyone forgets that when somebody comes yelling, comes in yelling that they found a body. This time, it's a dude. But the movie doesn't do anything with that. We see Zhao thinking of a pretty girl that looks like the dead girls. We know by the end of the movie that this is the girl that he's obsessing over. We get a montage then of the dead girls And we find out later that it's the photos that leaked online. Then we cut back to Bia again, looking at 
a fence and all we can see is a light on the other side of the fence. Then Mari is home with Zhao because her mom sent her there. Her mom had a night shift and is like, you're staying at Bia's. So when Bia shows up finally at night, she sees Mari there. The dog barks at Bia again. Bia big spoons Mari that night. But then when she wakes up, Mari is gone. There's a lot of mysterious dread in this film. Yes. But, and this was a question at the time, is it headed anywhere? No. No. And I think that's intentional. Mm-hmm. I think it is just to be about these just strong, powerful emotions you feel for no good fucking reason when you're an adolescent. And that's what it's about. Michelle tells the soap opera story, which is a real story of a Brazilian soap opera actor whose wife became jealous of the woman he was having a relationship with on the show. And so the two of them, the husband and the wife, trick this woman into getting into a car with them where they take her out to a field and kill her with scissors. Okay. It's it's something that happened, I think, in the 70s in Brazil. How does it relate? Just another story of murder. Bia ends up crawling through the hole in the fence. And this is where we're talking about her wanting to cross over, make some big change in her life. Maybe it's adulthood, maybe it's what. But the next thing that happens to Bia is that she's in the bathroom and she knows the other girl that she's been staring at is also in there. And she just stays at the sink and doesn't leave until the girl finally comes out and goes to wash her hands, at which point they look at each other Then they passionately make out, and then Bia stops and just leaves, without washing her hands, by the way. Always leave them wanting more. Yes, but obviously she's changed. Instead of just looking, she's taking action. This has happened after she crawled through the hole in the fence. Bia and Mari get into a fight over absolutely fucking nothing. They kind of bump into each other while everyone's trying to get food from this food bar thing at school. And then Bia calls Mari a slut. And Mari calls Bia's mom a whore. And they fight. And they both get hurt in almost the exact same spot on their forehead. Yeah. And this, Chris says that they get into a fight for no reason. I'm fairly certain As I said before, many, many times, she desperately wants to feel something. Yeah. And she recognizes, I think, that Mari is interested in her brother. And this would be an easy thing to pretend to be angry about and to get Mm -hmm. into a physical altercation because she's never been in one and she wants to know what it feels like. But I also think there's some sort of like self-hatred and projection going on here, too, Mm -hmm. because the thing that she calls Mari is a slut. The previous scene was her just making out with a rando in a bathroom, and then she calls Mari a slut. Not that anyone should be slut-shaming anybody, but, like, what the fuck did Mari do when Bia's the one that just made out with a stranger? It's like I said, I think it's her brother, but also just that she wants to get in a fight. Yes. And it's at this point where, okay, so as Chris said, now Bia has a scar, and she wears it proudly. She's really happy to walk around with it showing. Yeah. The other girl, Mari, covers it up with makeup. So I think they're showing us, you know, this girl wants everyone to know that she is Uh scarred. Mari wants everyone to think that she's perfect. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the other friend with the herpes covers it with her hair. Yeah. So that shows teenage shame. So we've got one who's rebellious, that's Bia. Mm -hmm. We've got Mari, who wants to be the perfect girl, Mm -hmm. high school girl. We've got the other one who wears the shame of sexuality. And and like contradictorily, it's 
bright red hair and she's always the one talking and telling stories. So she is ashamed of herself at the same time she exposes herself intentionally. Like there's that sort of contradiction in character for her. And then we've got Renata who is forced to wear a thing on her nose because it has to fix. Mm-hmm. It has to set right. So she is she forced. she got two black eyes. She's forced to bear the burden of being ugly. And the most scarred amongst all of them. And she has to feel the physical pain of it. Yeah. And everyone has to see it because there's nothing she can do about it. And there are random girls who have, like, black eyes for no reason. Yes. In the show, too. It's showing, yes. it's putting internal scars outward so you yes. can actually see them, which is not something we have the luxury of in real life. And so all four of these girls show a lot of stereotypical teenage girl issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the church throws a vigil. That's what they're all getting ready for, where everyone is going to be, including Zhao. Now, he goes up to this wall that has pictures of all the missing or murdered women and he puts a picture of the girl that he's been obsessing with so much on this wall so this is where we find out that this girl he's obsessed with is not the reason why he's killing all these other girls that look the same and who also happen to look like his sister no it's that he liked this girl she ghosted on him and because she looks like all the victims and she disappeared he's worried she might be an unknown victim But he runs into her at this vigil, and she's like, oh, shit, and she runs off. Bia and Mari run into each other afterwards just outside the vigil, and they hug and make up. uh, Because Bia forces Mari to hug. Mari does not want to. But they do hug and make up. There's another strangling murder, and we actually see what appears to be a male perpetrator. Then we cut to Bia sleeping like a baby. She have something to do with that? Did she is she the murderer? And then she feels better now that it's done. Nope. <laughs> and we see Bia walk home alone at night, sitting on what looks like where that previous murder took place. Uh, but it's unclear. I'll talk about that in a minute. Then she falls asleep there. She wakes up in the morning just fine, and then she's in a field, which may or may not be the field that she actually went to sleep in. She pops up. And walks towards the city. And then a bunch of other people do the same. Title card credits. I think that's just supposed to mean that everyone goes through this. We are not alone. Everyone is miserable. Everyone is lonely. Everyone is in the same field of loneliness, desperation, and depression. And yet we're all alone, even though we're all feeling the same things. I work with a guy who's Brazilian. He was born and raised in Sao Paulo, which is about the distance to Rio as here is to San Francisco. It's like five hours or so. I asked him about the overgrown lot that's this field and everyone's walking through it. And he's like, no, that's not a thing. I don't know what that's a reference to. (laughs) And then he saw that this was like a festival film. So when I described it as being like more existential than actually like tangible things happening, he's like, yeah, that sounds about right. It's an art house film. I'm like, yep, it definitely is. He's like, these movies that show up at these Rio film festivals, a lot of them tend to be like poetry, but it's a movie. Do you have any lightning round stuff? Not really. I, I, I just feel like... It's such a simple concept, and there's no reason to make this long of a movie about it. Yes. 
I agree. The dread, I wrote that the dread and the fear here is palpable, but it's existential. It's not tangible, despite the fact that we actually see at least one murder happening. But do you get it? This isn't a horror movie, really. But it's more like coming of age as a young girl is like a horror movie. Exactly. Do you get it? And it's a lot of that through the entire movie. This is the problem, though. Any criticism of the movie can just be turned around to, the, to support the message that it's trying to convey. Any criticism. I don't know. The ending was confusing and it felt sort of empty and not in an interesting way. Oh, do you mean like adolescence? Like that's how I feel. Like you could just it, – it's criticism proof. Because anything you say about the movie, you could just chalk up to being like growing up as a girl. I don't think that that's a good defense. It seems almost like it's a cop-out of a reason to make a movie and that you really didn't think it through or have anything to talk about other than I want people to feel the thing that it feels like to be a young girl, which is why I say it's it's more metaphor, it's more poetry than it is actual plot. There's just practically no plot. There's this thing in video games. There's like a spoof game. There's a game called Matt Hazard where he like plays through games and it's very fourth wall breaking and he knows that he's the hero in a video game. And it makes fun of boring and dumb video game mechanics. I get the joke, but you're still making me do the thing that you're making fun of for sucking. Right? Like in the video game, you're like, oh, here comes another wave of enemies. Yeah, but... You're telling me that sucks, but you're still making me do it. <laughs> That's not a good enough reason to make me do it. Just commenting on how much it sucks. For for a movie that was so compelling, I was let down by how little actually happened. It gets to the end, and I'm asking, is that it? What's the point? I'm fine with the point being that adolescence is awful, etc. Yeah. And I actually really appreciated... I really, really enjoyed the metaphor of the scars. I thought that yeah. was really well done. They didn't need to point you in any direction. It was, it, you know, it's there and it's clear. And I liked that. Yes. But, and and I don't mind the art house feel, but I need a plot. I'm sorry. I I just can't stand movies that don't have plots. I just can't do it. Like, I don't know why I don't seem to have a problem with a book that's just pure metaphor, <laughs> but yeah. for whatever reason, the medium of film, I feel like you need to have a plot. Yeah. I mean, at the end of this movie, I was like, congratulations, movie. I was bored and upset like a teenager. You made me feel like a teenager. Congratulations. Do you want me to thank you for that? Like, you're making me do the thing that sucks. I guess... See, I keep thinking about how how much like this conversation that we're having right now. Yeah. It's making me think about existentialism and it's making me think about how much I love Jean-Paul Sartre, etc. And okay, and I'm forcing myself to question, why do you enjoy reading an entire novel of just this basically? Uh-huh. But you can't stand to watch a film about it. I guess it's because when I sit down to read a book, I'm kind of expecting there to be some sort of well, yeah, message. Books, but in books, there's all about like 
uh, we get descriptions of things that you don't get in the film medium. And like, you're used to fluff in a book. That's a lot of what books are <laughs> is, I mean, I don't mean to be dismissive when I say fluff. I mean, like, it's all the extra stuff in addition to what the actual plot is, you know, that that builds on the plot to give a fully featured message. Right. It's communicating something that's more than just the events of the story. And books have the leisure to go off on a tangent and talk about something random. But when I'm watching something and I'm just sitting there and it's happening at me instead of me actually actively reading it, it can get boring. It's like I said, I've said this a couple times on this show. I wish I was more of an art person. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I can walk through an entire museum and think, God, this art is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I can stare at it for a couple minutes. But that's it. I can't stare at a piece of art for two hours and be enthralled. And that's what I felt like with this movie. I'm spending two hours watching art, and I am certainly not enthralled. In a museum, I look at a piece of art. I think the longest I can ever look at it, three minutes max, probably. Unless you're telling me all the history behind it. Yeah. But that's why I actually prefer to go on tours of museums because yeah. I want you to tell me why this is so important. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, like, I'm just I think look it's at it beautiful, say, but like, tell pretty. me why it's meaningful. Yeah. And I'm going to exactly. walk away. <laughs> exactly. It's well shot and it's compelling. And this is kind of the story that I was telling myself about it. Imagine being at a party and somebody really interesting and attractive is like, follow me. And they take you out of the party and you're walking down the street and you walk forever and they keep looking back at you and being like, Hey, come, keep coming. Come on, keep coming. And then you finally get to where you're supposed to be. And it's this, you've walked for a mile or two and you're in this drab empty place and they point to a cat. They're like, see, I wanted to show you this cat. You came up with this on your own. Yes. This is so random. I know. And, and, and your response to that is like, wait a minute, that's it. There were cats at the party and there were dogs <laughs> at this party. We could have done all of this, seen everything you wanted to see me to see and still been someplace more interesting. But you being compelling and like, I want to follow you. You you led me to nothing like so the movie makes bad decisions and it thinks it's more interesting than it really is. And it has something important to show me that they could have showed me without having to drag me on this two hour journey. It's upsetting. <laughs> I don't care how pretty you are, lady. You made me walk for two hours and showed me something that you could have shown me in five minutes. Like it's really, really kind of dragged out. But again, it's well made. It's beautiful. But ultimately, I leave the movie unimpressed I leave it feeling sort of like unfulfilled, uh, unthrilled, definitely. Mm -hmm. And whether that is the point or not, it doesn't mean I have to enjoy it or like it. And I will admit that's probably the point. We're expressing to you what it's like to grow up as a young woman. I get that. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I have to be interested in a two-hour journey of nothing. Do something else. You could tell a metaphor and things actually happen. Yes. I guess is my point. There, there are moments, too, where, like, is she sleeping in the same spot where the murder took place? I don't know. And you know what? I don't care to go back and look. 
It'd be <laughs> relatively easy to just go back and check. But why? <laughs> right? Like, let's say I verify that she is sleeping in the murder location. So what? What does that mean? None of the literal plot elements actually matter. It's all about communicating an idea, a sensation, a mental state. And it does that well, but to what end? Mm -hmm. You could have done that in 10 minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If someone's goal is to punch you in the face, I wrote, and they perform a jab that could knock out Ollie in his prime, am I supposed to gush about this person's form? They just hit me in the face. I think it's fair to be bummed that you got punched in the face. Just like I think it's fair to be bummed that I felt like I, I felt unfulfilled regardless of how great the movie was, regardless of the amazing form of that punch. I still got punched in the face <laughs> and I deserve to be upset about that. So what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey? 78? 72. There's no consensus with 18 reviews. It's Metacritic is an average of 69. Overrated or underrated? Overrated. But what would you give it? I feel like I've been giving this a lot lately. I'm giving it a 50. Wow. That low, huh? Yeah. I was going to give it a 60, I wrote down. Because it is, it does the thing that it sets out to do, and it does it really well. But it loses all those points because I didn't want it. <laughs> you know, and I, and I felt like my two hours were wasted. Yeah, the 50% is for the effort and for the message that you very, very much got across. Yes, very much. <laughs> it's just boring and... yeah. Not, and like all the intrigue led nowhere, as we've said multiple times, and yeah. Yeah. So you feel va a vague sense of disappointment and depression, and like nothing's going on, and you wish that it was more exciting. And I'm fully aware that that's exactly what life is, and yes. I don't need you to tell me that Congratulations, movie, you were successful in disappointing me. <laughs> and that is... 2015's Mateme Por Favor, or Kill Me Please, thus ending our end of school week this year on Pod Cemetery. We were going to do another week of that, uh, but we're actually going to push that off to next year because we're running out of those films. Instead, what are we watching next week, Kelsey? It's Father's Day. Hooray, dads. So we're going to watch, we're going to do a double feature. Ooh, a Father's Day double feature? Yeah. What is it? The Stepfather. Feel like I've heard of this before. Have we seen it? I've never seen either. Okay. What when were they made, you know? One was in the 80s, one was in like 2006. Right. I feel like I remember the 2006 one coming out. That one, the stepfather is played by the dorky one from Nip Tuck. I keep conflating Nip Tuck and 6 Feet Under. Yes. The one that looks like Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> Hopefully people know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. <laughs> What Steve Gutenberg looks like. I've heard the name. Three Men and a Baby. Which one is he? He's the only one you don't already know. He's not Tom Selleck, and he's not Sam from Cheers. Which one's Tom Selleck? The dude with the mustache? Monica's boyfriend in Friends? Oh. Oh, so the curly-haired guy. Yes. Okay. Just the average-looking short dude. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is Stepfather about? Like, just get, like a little tease. Evil Stepfather? All right. <laughs> I'll take that tease. I'm excited for that. Uh, you can watch that uh, if you join us next week. Until then, you can always reach us on our website, 
podcemetery.com. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. We often do commentary for every one of our episodes. You can email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are so, so, so helpful. Thank you all very much for those of you that have done that. Share us with your friends, please. And thank you oh so much for listening in the first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next time, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Now the fun begins. But don't look and don't watch. To the sacred place To see the dream I can't But yeah, I mean he and he lives Which in is the one we saw? With Keanu Reeves and uh get your damn hands off of her. Oh, that's um It's another that's based on a true story. Yeah, and like the dude kills his girlfriend. His girlfriend. And like the guys are covering for him. Mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves. Is it River's Edge? Yep. 1986. Yeah. Um, it is before My Own Private Idaho, which was in the 90s. Right? Where the fuck is it? Yeah, that's like 95. It's with River Phoenix, so it's before he died. Yeah, 91. Or same year that Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out, so the sequel to Bill and Ted. Same year that Point Break came out. <laughs> I'm an FBI agent. <laughs> all right, anyway. Fuck, why can't I ever say what I really mean? I couldn't find that clip. <laughs> <laughs> all right. God, how are we going to find any like clips to play? Or not. No, I mean for the trailer. I'm sure there's an American trailer. You think? Yes. A lot of times when there's foreign language films in an American trailer, they just write stuff on the screen. Probably not in the 90s. We'll see. We'll have to see how that goes. Well, one of them. Cut Cut that out. I will. There's a lot I'm going to cut out of about this part of the conversation. Um... A very depressed young lady lives in a town where there is a current serial killer, and her and her friends are very interested in learning about it, and that's it. It's interesting that you say that's it, because that is the whole fucking movie. (laughs) I'll put this in the end, after the outro, in the... What do you call it? The uh, outtakes. The outtakes. But yeah, your summary is the whole fucking movie. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, stupid Americans. There uh-huh. it is. <laughs> You're fun. Your face is fun. Okay, we have Bia, our main girl. 
we have Mari, the curly-haired, dark-skinned one. She the dancer? Yes. Okay. We have Michelle with the red hair. The one that Bia the becomes wild attracted one. to? No. I don't know where you get that from. At no point is she attracted to her. She makes out with one of the girls. None of the girls that are in this friend group. None. Yes, she does. No, she doesn't. One of them has a boyfriend, and at first you think that she's jealous that she has a boyfriend. Then you yes. realize, no, she's just that turned girl, on by that girl. That girl is none of our four main characters. Really? Yes. She doesn't have the same hair color, the same eye color, the same skin color of any of the main characters. I don't know why you're confused about this. Just totally making it your own. Yeah. You do that, girl. Okay. 